Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, also part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I've got a really great guest today. His name is uh, Professor Paul Davies. He's at Arizona State University, currently hanging out in uh, Australia on a non-sabbatical sabbatical, still doing work and uh, enjoying Australia for a while. And we're going to talk about uh, some topics in physics, uh, quantum gravity, and the early universe cosmology, etc. So, Paul, welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Well, tell me about your, your research. What's the focus of it lately? Because it looks like you've, uh, you've authored 30 books and I've gone over many, many topics. So what's, what's most interesting to you nowadays? Uh, the lockdown has actually been uh, very fortunate for me. It enabled me to write another book uh, at fast pace. It's called What's Eating the Universe and Other Cosmic Mysteries, and it'll be due out next uh, September. Uh, so uh, that uh, worked very much to my advantage. I'm a theoretical physicist and cosmologist by profession, and most of my research over the years has fallen into that area. But about 30 years ago, I became interested in what's called astrobiology. wasn't called that at the time. Uh, and this is trying to understand life in the universe, the origin of life, life elsewhere, searching for uh, ET, all of those sort of fun topics. Uh, so that's been running in parallel with my work in uh, astrophysics and cosmology, black holes, Big Bang, and so forth. And then, extraordinary thing about uh, 12 years ago, I was asked to join a new research effort uh, bringing physical scientists into the field of cancer research. And so I led a big uh, cancer program at Arizona State University, looking at all aspects of cancer, but in particular, developing my own new theory of cancer, uh, a cancer as a biological phenomenon with deep evolutionary roots. And so these three different strands of my research have sort of interwoven over the last few years. And when you ask me, what am I doing at the moment? It's actually contributing to all three, uh, probably on a daily basis. Well, maybe if we could touch on all three and then go deeper. So astrobiology, besides the uh, biological material that people have taken into space and to the moon and who knows where else, I know they try to sanitize spacecraft, but I don't know if they can fully. Do you think that there is any life outside of Earth and what form might it take? Well, of course, we absolutely don't know uh, if there is any life beyond Earth. There is no direct evidence for that. When I was a student, it was assumed that life is restricted to Earth only. Life is so complex that the thought of it happening twice seemed ridiculous. Uh, But that mood has shifted in recent decades. And now it's fashionable to suppose that the universe is teeming with life. But to be perfectly honest, uh, we don't know what uh, which is the case. Uh, it's there's no evidence whatever, no direct evidence of any life beyond Earth. Uh, but there's, of course, a lot of effort going into uh, searching for it. And this effort uh, divides up into looking within the solar system. And I think Mars is probably 
my favorite place to look. We haven't found anything yet, but it's just possible that there was or maybe just still is uh, clinging on life on Mars. We'll see. Uh, and then uh, people are looking at extrasolar planets. These are planets going around other stars uh, in the hope of detecting telltale signs in the atmospheres of, uh, of life. But uh, that's very much a long shot and also um, requires very advanced technology that we don't have yet. So those are the ways in which uh, people are looking. The big problem is we have no idea how life began, whether it was a bizarre fluke, chemical accident, a dream run of chemical reactions that has happened only once, or whether there's a sort of deeply embedded life principle in the laws of nature that mean that given an Earth-like planet, life almost inevitably emerges. Uh, we, we have no idea. And if you don't know what the process is that turn non-life into life, you can't work out the odds. So when you ask me how likely is it that there's life out there, nobody can give you an answer to that because we just don't know how likely it is that life will pop up given Earth-like. Um, what would it tell you if there is life discovered in our solar system or somewhere else? And what would it tell you if there's not? If you know we really are able to discern all the planets in our solar system and then beyond, you know, to, I don't know, a reasonable distance, maybe a 50 light years somehow. What would that tell you if there was those two instances? What would you think? Well, it's very hard to prove a negative. You might uh, search for years and years, uh, for example, the surface of Mars and not find anything. Uh, but life could still be there lurking beneath the surface. Now, uh, there is a big problem for all of the bodies in the surface. My entree into the subject of astrobiology was because I pointed out that Earth and Mars get hit from time to time by comets and asteroids but with enough force to splatter rocks all around the solar system. And some of the Mars rocks come to Earth. Some of the Mars rocks come to Earth. Our university, for example, has half a dozen Mars rocks that have fallen as meteorites. And in the same way, Earth rocks go to Mars. So these Two planets are not quarantined from, from each other. Uh, they exchange material. And because we know that uh, you pick up a rock, break it open, it's teeming with microbes. So uh, microbes live not just on the surface of the Earth, but inside the Earth, in, in the solid material. So when this material goes splashing off to Mars, it takes Earth microbes with it. Uh, whether they find it congenial when they arrive is another matter. Uh, but the point is uh, that there's a, a very high chance that the planets within the solar system have contaminated each other in this way. Uh, we may find life on Mars, but for my money, it's probably just going to be boring old Earth life, and it won't be uh, the second genesis that we're all really looking for. We really like to answer the question, how likely is it that life will form? And if you find two samples of life in the solar system, if it's begun more than once, then you know it can't be that difficult to turn non-life into life. For that matter, you don't even need to go to Mars. You could look for a second form of life right here on Earth. It's sometimes called the shadow biosphere. It's something that I've been involved with for a number of years. Uh, it's basically mission to Earth. We look around us in the microbial realm to see if there are any signs of life, but not as we know it. Some alternative form of microbe, alternative biochemistry or something that would signal an independent origin. Uh, and so far, of course, we ha don't have answers to these questions. But if we find uh, that there is just one other, just one other microbe, just one other sample of life, then we know that the universe is inherently biofriendly, that the laws of the universe are wreaked in favor of life. 
there's a deep principle, which we haven't yet discovered in science, uh, which basically fast tracks matter to life wherever there is an opportunity. That would, the philosophical implications of that would be enormous. Uh, some people point out that if we uh, came to the conclusion that we are alone in the universe, that life is a sort of freak accident restricted uh, just to one planet, maybe we'd look after our planet a little bit better than we have been. So it cuts both ways. Um, implications are profound. Right. How many times do you think life started on Earth? Do you think just once? And once it started, that was it? Or do you think it started multiple times? If you look in textbooks, it'll tell you that all life on Earth is the same life. Uh, and that statement is actually technically incorrect. Uh, the correct statement is all life on Earth so far studied is the same life. And so if I look out the window here, the grass and the trees uh, and the insects uh, and then the microbes and uh, everything else, it's the same life, the same system, same biochemical system, same genetic code, and obviously had a common origin. But we wouldn't recognize, particularly if it's just microbes, a, a, an alternative origin of life. And so it's entirely likely that it did happen more than once. Now, of course, it could have happened many times, but only one survived. So the fact that, uh, that there is only one form of life, even if it was established, it is only one form today, it, that, it may not have been that way in the past. And so what we know about the early Earth is that it wasn't a very congenial place for life to get going. Uh, it was being bombarded, as I've mentioned, by huge comets and asteroids and bodies pounding down from space, some of these with enough force to sterilize the whole planet. And yet it would have lifted vast amounts of material uh, off into solar orbit, uh, where it could come back again later. And so there's a natural mechanism for multiple origins of life. That life gets going, then wham, Earth is sterilized, but this life is uh, in orbit around the sun. And then uh, things settle down and life starts up again on Earth. But then the first form of life comes back. And then I've got two forms of life and then maybe three and four and so on. This could have happened many, many times until this bombardment ended around about 3.8 billion years ago. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. I've heard that some of the astronauts that have been to the moon have left you know, biological material there. Has anyone saw fit to go back and analyze it and see if there's any microbes living in it or tardigrades or anything that's that survived? Uh, yes, there's a very famous case of uh, an early spacecraft uh, called Surveyor, I think, uh, and some bacteria were found to be alive in the shaded areas. If the sun gets you, then the UV is uh, deadly. But in the shadowed uh, part of the landing gear, some hardy bacteria were found to be living uh, some years after uh, afterwards. And there have been experiments with the space station uh, exposing microbes to space conditions. And some microbes are incredibly hardy. They can survive the harsh conditions of outer space 
even when unprotected. But of course, if you're inside a rock, then it's even better. And so what, what I was talking about is uh, asteroid impacts that fling rocks into space. And inside those rocks, you're shielded from the deadly radiation and conditions are not that bad. I should say that these bacteria uh, are dormant in that uh, state. They, in fact, bacteria love to be freeze-dried, and that's a, a condition in interplanetary space. Uh, and uh, but protected from radiation, uh, they can probably survive, it's been estimated, uh, some of them, for up to about 10 million years. So it can go a long wow. way in that time. Uh, so uh, there's really no fundamental impediment to life spreading from one planet to a near neighbor planet. It, it would be much harder to go outside the solar system. Uh, the distances between planetary systems are so vast, the nearest other star system is four and a third light years away. And uh, material is flung out of the solar system from time to time, mainly by the gravity of Jupiter. Uh, but it may take tens of thousands or even millions of years for this material to reach another star system. And then, of course, it's only a very small probability it would hit another Earth-like planet. And so uh, the mechanism I'm talking about, sometimes called panspermia, uh, or transpermia or, or something of that nature, uh, the exchange of life, microbial life between near neighbor planets looks inevitable. But the exchange from one planetary system to another looks far more dubious uh, and, and may not, not have happened. We don't know. It's very yeah. hard to work out the odds. Amazing. So what's, uh, you know, in closing for this part of your research, what's the most ambitious or exciting project you know of in astrobiology right now? Uh, well, uh, there are really a number of them uh, that are long-term. Uh, I mentioned about looking for signs of life in the atmospheres of extrasolar planets. In the long run, that will probably be seen as uh, the best thing of all. Uh, but, um, it, but it is the long run. We're not going to be soon. And so for me, the biggest hope and biggest excitement continues to be Mars exploration. Uh, but now we've got a very frustrating thing, which is that in the 1970s, NASA sent uh, two spacecraft to Mars called Viking uh, with biological experiments. On. Uh, these experiments were a bit confused and no firm conclusion could be drawn, but they didn't rule out life in the dirt, and the Martian dirt that they were examining. Uh, ever since then, NASA has refused to repeat those experiments. And so although uh, there have been a whole fleet of NASA spacecraft and from other nations going to Mars, Nobody has conducted a biological experiment in all these decades. I would uh, very much like to see the Viking experiments repeated uh, and, of course, updated for modern technology. Uh, so that's really more of a wish than an expectation. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, if you get in touch with Elon Musk, he'll probably be a lot more receptive to you than uh, NASA will. I think you're right. I think at the end of the day, uh, government agencies tend to be very cautious in what they do. And of course, they're run by committees. And a lot of people felt that Viking was a waste of money. It was a very expensive mission at the time. And they thought, well, you know, didn't really find anything definitive. And so why waste our money? And we may get ambiguous results next time. So uh, it does it does require a more visionary approach. I bet if you reach out to him on Twitter, he may answer you if you give him an interesting enough project. But he may. I have been in touch with Elon Musk anyway. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Excellent. Well, very good. Let's let's talk a little bit about, uh, you said you were working on cancer. That's interesting, being a physicist. What was your approach there, and how did you run into that? 
Well, I came into the subject without any prior knowledge. I was asked by the Deputy Director of the National Cancer Institute, Anna Barker, uh, to uh, help get a program running, which was eventually funded uh, about $30 million a year, uh, bringing physical scientists and uh, cancer biologists together uh, to try to bring some new thinking. The, uh, I don't need to tell you uh, that uh, cancer touches every family on the planet and it's a killer disease. It's uh, over the decades, the treatment has improved, but mostly the treatment is the same as it was back in the 1960s, surgery, radiation therapy, chemo. And uh, some cancers, the, uh, the outcome has been improved a lot, childhood uh, leukemia being one of them. Some have got worse. The overall picture is not a very happy one. It's one of uh, very slow uh, incremental progress. And so the sort of dramatic breakthrough we all like, you know, a pill to make cancer go away, seems to be a very distant dream. So it's not like communicable diseases, uh, which uh, where antibiotics made a huge difference at the time. Cancer is a very tough one. And, and partly that's because uh, there's no real understanding what cancer is as a biological phenomenon. Uh, that most people involved in cancer just want to find somewhere making it go away. And they very rarely ask, well, what is cancer? Uh, why does it exist anyway in, in life? Uh, what is its uh, place in the great story of life on Earth? And uh, being a theoretical physicist, I always ask the most basic questions first. And so I came to this thinking, well, okay, we hear about cancer all the time, but what actually is it? What, what, what an extraordinary thing to happen that uh, you have a cell in a particular tissue that starts to pr proliferate, uh, replicate uncontrollably, and then over time will spread around the body, colonize other organs. Uh, and that's usually very bad for the host organism. Why, why does this happen? Why is this uh, part of the life story? And it happens in a very systematic way uh, that um, the story I've just told you is a very predictable, it's a very predictable disease. Of course, in any given individual, there's always you know, chance they'll do better or worse. But overall, statistically, cancer is a very pretty disease. So it suggests that it's a sort of pre-programmed response. And that was the way I came at it. But uh, for me, the, the great revelation occurred a few years ago with the uh, discovery that uh, certain ancient corals have tumor suppressor genes in them. Uh, and it's, it's very clear that cancer is a very ancient phenomenon. And in fact, it's found across all all, pretty much all multicellular species, so all mammals, birds, fish, insects, plants, uh, corals, I've just mentioned, fungi, uh, pretty much anything that is multicellular uh, has cancer or cancer-like phenomena. And so that suggests that the origin of cancer uh, is at the convergence of the on the tree of life of all those diverse organisms. And when was that convergence? Well, the uh, origin of multicellularity, it actually evolved many times, but it's between one and one and a half billion years ago. And so that suggests the cancer, uh, the, the roots of cancer, the evolutionary roots, uh, the, the genetic heritage like, dates back to that period of time. And so I began developing this uh, idea that cancer is a sort of reversion or a throwback to this uh, more primitive uh, life form on Earth about one and a half billion years ago, uh, along with some colleagues, particularly Charles Lineweaver, the Australian National University, and Kimberly Bassey, 
colleague of mine at Arizona State University, and now there are many others who've joined this effort. And this uh, theory, we sometimes call it the atavistic theory of cancer, that is a sort of throwback theory, um, has gained a lot of traction. And in particular, because you can make rather strong predictions, you can test these ideas by looking at the ages of the genes. So if you tell me your favorite cancer gene, and there are a few thousand that have been cataloged, um, I can look up how old is that gene. Uh, and we predict. How old do you mean, what, the first instance of it in the fossil record? That's right. Yes, yes. Well, not in the fossil record. You have to look at across thousands and thousands of species. Uh, you look for homologues of those genes, which is uh, by homologue, I mean you recognize the same gene with some mutations in other species. So if you take a particular gene, uh, you can look in a chimpanzee, say, and if you'll find that same gene slightly altered, maybe. And then uh, you know, look in a frog, it's uh, find it again, same altered. And this enables you to work out the convergence in the past. And then tying that through the fossil record to an actual date uh, is a separate exercise. And all that's been put together very well. There's an entire field of research. It's called phylostratigraphy. And it does for genes what geologists do for the different rock strata. Uh, and so phylostratigraphy can be used to, to put dates on the cancer genes and see how they cluster. And there are two clusters that have been discovered. One is um, goes right back to the earliest uh, forms of life, about three and a half billion years ago. And the other clusters around this multicellularity event uh, just over a billion years ago. So sure enough, what, what these genes that are drivers of our very ancient genes, uh, we, we have to nuance all this, I should say. There's been some work done in uh, Melbourne by David Good and Anna uh, Trigos and their colleagues, and they've been looking at networks of genes, those that control the unicellular uh, program of life, so single-cell organisms, uh, like a, an amoeba or something like that, it has a network of genes that control its activity. And then in multicelled organisms, there are multicellular networks, networks specifically for multicellularity. And these two networks of genes are coupled together in a healthy individual. And what happens in cancer uh, is that uh, the, uh, the two, the unicellular, multicellular uh, gene networks become decoupled or they get rewired basically these networks and uh, this contributes to the cancer so this idea of uh, treating cancer as something with very very ancient roots as a throwback or reversion to some ancestral form uh, is proving very very instructive uh, we, we also think it's important for therapy and uh, for for the following reason that what we discovered at Arizona State University is that one of the most ancient defense mechanisms in life on Earth uh, is to be able to turn up the rate of mutation. And bacteria uh, do this. Uh, they've been able to do it for billions of years. If they're stressed, for example, starving or something like that, can't metabolize the material around them, uh, they can actually turn up their rate of mutation and try to sort of mutate, uh, find a different way out of uh, the, the problem mutate their way out of trouble. Uh, it's often called an SOS response. Uh, and what we discovered is that as a set of cancer genes, the direct analogs or homologs is the correct term, of these SOS bacterial genes. So uh, cancer cells are cells, for example, in the human body that recognize they have a problem and, uh, and they 
then turn up the rate of mutation to get out of that problem. I think everybody knows that cancer is associated with a high rate of mutation. But the standard theory says, well, it's the mutations that are causing the cancer. We think it's the other way around. We think the cancer is it's self-inflicted. So, at least some of these bits are self-inflicted and as part of this SOS response. And what that tells you with chemotherapy, for example, uh, is that instead of going in with all guns blazing, sort of annihilation strategy that will only provoke this SOS, it's better to have a more measured maintenance. So we, we strongly think that cancer should be treated as a chronic disease, that is one in which you manage it and live with it, rather than try to annihilate it. It's a very different approach, and it uh, stems directly from our view of cancer as a reversion to an ancestral form. All right, so a couple of questions here. So if cancer is a reversion to more ancestral forms of genes, is there then a, a second differentiation back to a more contemporary form? You know, so the reversion is a protective mechanism, but the reversion doesn't stay. Or does it then differentiate out in an attempt to, I guess, lock in the, now the successful, hopeful ad- adaptation of the cellular material? Uh, well, well that raises a very interesting question, which can be answered in a number of ways. One is that can we find a way of normalizing cancer cells? In other words, uh, if cancer is a reversion to an ancient form, can we sort of fast forward again and put it back to a more normal form? And that would be the dream that uh, if cancer is something going wrong with the chemical wiring, that is the information patterns, information flow embedded in the cells, so can we uh, do the equivalent of a reboot on a computer or download uh, you know, a patch when you have some sort of mal- malfunction in your software? Uh, you can often correct that in some way, and, and that's my dream in the longer term. Um, but there's some tantalizing evidence about normalization of uh, cancer cells and cancer tissues. If you take a cancer cell and transplant it into healthy tissue of the same type, uh, will often uh, just sit there quietly. In other words, the, the tissue microenvironment uh, normalizes its behavior. If you take the nucleus of a cancer cell and transplant it into a healthy cell, once again, even though it's a cancer cell genetically, it will have a normal phenotype, behave normally. And um, you can even take a cancer cell and put it in an embryo and grow an embryo. But mostly uh, for quite a long time, it's a normal embryo, even though it's being grown from a cancer cell. And so life does have the ability to, uh, you know, flip back and forth. But sadly, I mean, the condition that we're in now is that once cells revert back down to this path, back towards their sort of selfish unicellular heritage uh, and uh, run amok in the body, they've effectively broken the contract, which uh, was forged one and a half billion years ago for all multicellular organisms. Paul, do, yes. are they really unicellular? I mean, essentially, tumors are not. I mean, they're a, I guess they're a collaborative thing because they, they entice blood vessels to grow and feed the tumor. And then metastases right. versus primary tumor is their communication. So is cancer actually a multicellular form, like a biofilm right. or a swarm organism? You, you, what you have expressed is my own personal opinion, which is that it's not a total reversion to uh, just uh, unicellularity, every cell for itself, because there is evidence of organization and cooperation, particularly in the metastatic uh, process. And and so I think uh, the way that we expressed it, uh, that is Charles Lineweaver and I in our original paper, is cancer as uh, metazoa 1.0. We are metazoa 
2.0. So the title of our paper said Metazoa 1.0. In other words, we saw it as being a reversion to the cusp, the transition phase between the unicellular and multicellular world, where some multicellularity to some multicellular traits were retained uh, in this organization. So that's my own personal view. Uh, it depends a little bit on what you're studying. So some of the properties, the best way of putting it, of the cells uh, correspond to the unicellular world. Uh, some correspond to simply a disruption, as I mentioned about the work of David Good and Anna Trigos, a disruption between the uh, gene networks that control the unicellular aspects of the multicellular. So it's a more nuanced picture. But this general idea is that it's a sort of throwback or reversion. And uh, once that has happened, we it, it's really very hard to normalize, as it were, fast forward again. We don't know how to do that. Well, what does the heterogeneity of, of tumors tell you about cancer? I mean, do you think it, a lot of people seem to say it arises from a single cell that mutates, but if there's a stress that causes this reversion, I would think that the stress would affect at least all the cells of a given tissue. And so you should have multiple instances of this regression. And because that regression is not you know, like totally controlled, maybe that's the original basis for heterogeneity that moves forward and to create a tumor. Uh, the cancer heterogeneity is a very important feature. And uh, there are two ways that you can explain it. One is that uh, the because of these high rates of mutation, you would expect a lot of genetic drift, but then you would expect sort of Darwinian selection and that you wouldn't expect these, uh, this heterogeneity to be totally random. But it's very much a subject of research. At Arizona State University, we've got something called the Arizona Cancer Evolution Center. Just yesterday, I was listening to a lecture by one of the people in this center on this very topic of uh, tumor heter heterogeneity and what its origin might be. Now, I will put a, my own personal spin on it, which is that, uh, as I've, I've mentioned, cancer can turn up its, deliberately turn up its rate of mutation, looking for solutions to problems. After all, cancer arises because a particular tissue, uh, say in the human body, is under stress for some reason. It might be just a poor tissue environment, it might be hypoxia, lack of oxygen, it might be a carcinogen or so radiation damage or something, but basically a cell will be unhappy and it uh, switches on this, uh, this uh, cancer program, becomes a, a cancer cell in an attempt to either survive or get out, uh, migrate to somewhere else uh, in this bad uh, environment. But so I think a lot of the heterogeneity is because of this self-inflicted elevated rate of mutation. Uh, but I also think uh, there's another thing going on here. And I, this is just an opinion. I don't have any evidence, but one thing that is, is established, it's often called the, the Warburg effect or Warburg effect, to say correctly, it's that uh, the metabolism of cancer cells uh, is uh, quite different from that of ordinary cells. Cells can uh, make energy in two different ways. One is uh, called oxidative phosphorylation, and that's what you and I are doing all the time uh, if we're in a healthy state. Uh, but it's possible if you can't get enough oxygen uh, to uh, do different uh, type of process. It's called glycolysis. And uh, this is uh, what your cells will do. For example, athletes uh, cells make energy that way. Now, the, it was discovered over 100 years ago by Otto Warburg, German Nobel Prize winner, uh, that cancer cells uh, will do this glycolysis uh, business uh, even in the presence of normal oxygen. 
So it's one of the characteristics of it. It's metabolically altered. It does metabolism differently. Now, uh, doing metabolism via this uh, glycolysis, it's basically fermentation. Uh, doing it that way is great for making biomass, not so good for making energy. Uh, and so if all you want to do is replicate, 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 that's the way to do it. But it means your energy resources are depleted. And when you think about what the cell does, it does an awful lot of things. One of the things that it does very well, a healthy cell, is uh, gene replication and gene editing. Cells, when they replicate their DNA, will have to go in and fix up all the errors and spend a lot of money uh, doing proofreading and editing, all these sorts of functions that we, that humans can now do with uh, gene editing technology. Well, cells have been doing it for billions of years themselves. That requires a lot of energy. And I conjecture, but it's nothing more than that, that uh, when cancer cells uh, choose this alternative low energy metabolism, uh, they simply give up on a lot of the sort of bells and whistles uh, of more modern life and abandon things like the uh, gene editing and uh, error correction. And so you see a lot of heterogeneity. It's just not worth the cancer cells uh, policing the or editing the script uh, at that level of detail, given uh, their alternative strategy. Do you think that perhaps the attraction of a different localized microbiome because now the, the cancer cells, as you said, they're not doing, let's say, oxidative phosphorylation. They're doing glycolysis. I would think, therefore, they would produce different metabolites and attract a different localized microbiome. And that would reinforce their new state and kind of add to it, maybe even contribute to their immunity. You know, they get plasmids from bacteria that, that help them somehow. Yes, that's a very interesting suggestion. This isn't something that I've investigated, but you would expect, particularly if you take something like colon cancer, that the very rich microbiome of the colon is going to be altered in the presence of the colon tumors. I'm sure that is the case. I just don't happen to know specifically how that alteration would be tied to the change in metabolism. But that's a research topic. So what are your thoughts, knowing what you know? You said it, it, cancer could be treated as more of a chronic condition that's managed. What does management look like? Is that just dampening down the cell division rate but leaving everything else intact you know when tumors form do they have any functionality inside the body or are they just useless essentially uh, the first thing to understand is that uh, primary tumors are responsible for very few death uh, that um five percent is the number that pops in my mind that mostly the bad news is when the tumors spread around the body and if we can find some way of reducing that spread or if it does spread, reducing the rate at which the tumours in remote organs themselves grow and spread, uh, then living with uh, cancer. I, what I should point out, because a lot of people, you know, the, the C word, of course, is so frightening uh, that they have this notion that if you've got cancer, you've just got to annihilate it, you know, go in, go in with um, all, all the weapons at our disposal and get rid of it. But actually, I think uh, somebody said it my age, we're, we're living with cancer all the time. Uh, there'll be cancer cells in my body. There'll probably be microtumors in my body. And the body is dealing with them. Uh, there are all sorts of mechanisms to stabilize cancer. Uh, but the immune system is part of this. But there are other mechanisms as well that stabilize cancers, small cancers in tissues. And so we, we are living with cancer anyway. And uh, the, when people say, well, they've been diagnosed with cancer, that's because it presents clinical Symptom. If we could change the mindset of 
to say, well, uh, we, we don't have to uh, totally get rid of this. Uh, of course, people don't like the idea. They've got some sort of life-threatening clump of cells inside them. But if you point out, well, you've probably got lots of others as well. It's just that this is one we've noticed and that we will manage it and just stop it spreading. And now, as I pointed out earlier, if you try to annihilate it chemically, you're likely to provoke it into a more aggressive form. And that this is a very familiar story. People undergo bouts of chemotherapy. The neoplasm, as the new cells are called, become resistant to that. And the more aggressive clones then uh, take over and then you have to switch to a different type of chemotherapy. And you're fighting this rear guard action. Uh, if what you're trying to do is just sort of stabilize, uh, then it just means more controlled, smaller doses of uh, chemo spread out over, over a longer period of time. Uh, and, you, and if you told somebody that, for example, they've been diagnosed with, with cancer, maybe there's some initial surgery, remove primary tumor surgery. And at the moment, when you do that, you, you can tell the patient uh, the probability that the cancer will come back within five years. Distressingly high, that you put a number to it. But if uh, we were able to say to a patient, well, we've removed the primary tumor, there's a 50% probability it will come back in 50 years then I think we could all live with that. And so that's the, my dream is that, uh, you know, if we can't actually get the pill to make it all go away or, or uh, upload the software patch that would uh, normalize these cells, this is uh, a you know, very speculative idea. If we can't do that, uh, we can simply get to the stage where, you know, with like diabetes, uh, something that you live with and you control doesn't have to itself be, be fatal. Do you think there's a, 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 a cellular consensus mechanism? What I'm, what I'm saying is, you know, when you talked about cancer cells being implanted into healthy tissue, I don't know if it's been done in mice, but I would bet that there needs to be millions of cells implanted in order for cancer to take hold. If you just implant a few, or maybe a few hundred, it's less likely. And maybe perhaps because there's a, uh, there's, there's a majority rule, essentially, in any given tissue. And when cancer cells constitute a true minority, then maybe the immune system, everything is kind of turned against them because, again, the consensus is not them and their wishes and their metabolites. But when they grow to a certain critical mass or size, perhaps then that's when they really gain traction because they are the predominant force in a given local like microenvironment. There will be a critical mass. And a colleague of mine at ASU uh, tried to uh, work out what that might be. And it was actually not millions. Uh, he, he figured about 50 cells. If you have a microtumor of about 50 cells, then there could be a sort of turnover where the immune system is knocking off the peripheral cells at about the same rate as the uh, microtumor is replicating. And he uh, did apply for a grant to, to do that, didn't get the money. Uh, you see, what you could do is you could do autopsies on traffic accident victims, for example, and you could look in healthy tissues for microtumors, which are being stabilized, uh, have, have not reached a clinically difficult uh, stage. And then we'd have some better idea. So this is work that could be done. And uh, as far as I know, nobody has really followed that up. The problem is the cancer research is that almost all that research is done with people who have cancer for obvious reasons. These are people for whom the clinical symptoms are already manifested. But to fully understand this phenomenon, we need to do research on healthy individuals in which the cancer hasn't uh, taken over, uh, but it may still be there. And then we'll have a much better idea of what this critical mass might be. So it's a really important point, and yet uh, there's very little known about it. Yeah, interesting. What, so again, same question, and we're getting close to wrapping up. 
um, you know, with astrobiology, what to you is the most exciting work being done right now in cancer, you know, whether it's from you or through you in collaboration with you or just out there? What, what are you looking to? Well, uh, I'll answer that in two ways. One way is what is the community most excited about in terms of uh, treatment options? And that has to be this whole field called immunotherapy to boost the immune system, uh, to which has an anti-cancer role anyway. Uh, in the hope of uh, tackling uh, tackling the problem that way, and and that's the early results of that. Although they're all over the place, so there have been some very heartwarming success stories, and so that's uh, that's got to be it. But for me, my main interest remains in trying to understand cancer as a biological phenomenon, and because my view of the nature of life is, which goes back to the astrobiology work, uh, is that the key difference in living systems, living matter, as opposed to complex non-living matter, is the information content, the information processing and management capabilities. Life is uh, not just about complexity, it's about control or managed complexity. Uh, and the, these networks of information that I've been talking about, these are genetic networks and there's epigenetic networks and chemical networks and metabolic networks. Um, I see life as a vast web of information flow and information exchange. And so for me, the most exciting work is trying to apply like information theory uh, and complexity theory, uh, not just to, to cancer, but uh, to, to life in general. And the, to, to come bang up to date, I think everybody's uh, fixated at the moment on viruses and uh, the pandemic and so on. But one bad virus it shouldn't conceal the fact that there is a, a virome across the planet, that just as we have a biosphere and there are microbes right across the planet, there are viruses right across the planet. They're mobile genetic elements, part of this network, this web of information exchange. They help stabilize the whole system. And I think uh, for me, the most exciting thing is to, is to understand this informational picture where viruses fit in, where bacteria fit in, where multicelled organisms uh, ultimately is the software uh, that is going to help us understand life, uh, not so much the hardware. Very good. I can have you back on, if you would, multiple times to keep talking about all the research you're doing. But for now, where can people find out more about your work? Uh, well, uh, the, my uh, most uh, recent uh, published book uh, is called The Demon in the Machine, and it's how networks of information are explaining life. Uh, the Demon in the Machine is the demon. Well, it goes back to uh, Clark Maxwell and Maxwell's demon uh, in physics. I won't get into that now, but that's uh, one place. We didn't get to talk about the cosmology and the origin of the universe and so on, but people who are more interested in that might uh, try my earlier book called The Goldilocks Enigma. Why is the universe just right for life? And then one last thing, that if you're interested in the search for ET, then uh, my book, The Eerie Silence, uh, which came out for the 50th anniversary of SETI, is the book for you. So plenty right. of choice there. Very good, Paul. This is great. Thank you so much for coming. I appreciate it. Oh, I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? 
Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.